0: This program is brought to you with support from the US EPA. We're here to present the EFC Network podcast. The Environmental Finance Center Network is a partnership of 12 centers serving 10 EPA regions. The EFCN provides training and technical assistance to small water and wastewater systems. This podcast series has been designed to help system personnel improve technical, managerial, and financial capacity of the utilities and communities they serve. Welcome to this episode of the EFCN Podcast. In today's discussion we will be talking with Dr. Tim Calling, P.E., about the asset management process and how it can benefit small water systems to improve capacity and increase long-term sustainability. Dr. Calling has been involved in asset management through a variety of infrastructure types over the last 20-plus years of his career, from bridges and highway systems, as well as water and wastewater systems, which he has designed and provided engineering consultation for. Tim is also the director of the Great Lakes Environmental Infrastructure Center at Michigan Technological University, which provides community research and education regarding public infrastructure projects. Tim, thank you for joining us today. Thanks, Greg. It's great to be here today. So today we're talking about asset management, uh, making a case for asset management. Tim, what is asset management? Greg, first
1: and foremost, asset management is a business process. So it's a business process that's based on data, and it's a continuous process. So it's something that happens over and over again. It's not something that we do and we're done with. Um, Kind of in a nutshell, asset management is using data to make financial and managerial decisions for a group of infrastructure. Um, So those decisions that we might make are kind of far and wide. They have uh, lots of different implications in the different parts of the system we have. For example, if we have data on where our system is, our water distribution system, we know where it is. Maybe it's mapped in a GIS system. That map has information on the size of pipe, the depth of pipe, the types of valves that we have. That makes it easier for water operators to to locate a pipe when there's a a break. Or if they're doing a valve exercise program, they have an idea of where to find physically that asset out in the field. We can also collect data on when we do things like valve maintenance, uh, replacement of valves, exercising valves, things of that nature. And so we've got a record that we can go back to. We can take a look at kind of more macro network-wide asset management functions where we collect data. Um, and use that data to make decisions on things like um, the overall strategy for the replacement of our distribution system. So, we know that we have a size of a distribution system. Let's say we have 100 miles of pipe, for example. And let's just assume in our fictitious uh, water network that that pipe was all put in 50 years ago. So, we know that typically we'll get a service life of about 75, 80 years out of uh, a ductile iron pipe. Um, So we're at year 50 right now. That means we've got about 25 years uh, left in our network um, in, in a serviceable life where we have to start replacing parts of that network as it fails. And so if we want to do that replacement over, say, 25 years, we know we have to replace at the rate of about four miles of pipe a year. So that gives us an idea of kind of the financial burden that's coming down as infrastructure rotates out of its useful life as it needs repair maybe another third example we can look at with asset management and how data is used is we could take a look at say some of our older pipes and of course as as infrastructure ages they're going to leak we're going to have breaks Um, we could use that information um, on the size of pipe the type of pipe the material when it was installed uh, who installed it and we could start to look at things like break history uh, or uh, water loss and we can start to get a picture of the financial cost of not replacing that pipe. So, If we don't replace the section of pipeline that's kind of in poor shape it's leaking water we can estimate a water loss and the financial cost of that we can estimate uh, the break frequency per mile breaks per mile what that costs uh, both to us and to our users and we can use that as kind of a, a a funding mechanism to determine when it's financially beneficial to replace that section of pipe so Kind of in a nutshell, asset management again is using that data to make better decisions.
0: You uh, described asset management as a business process. And so stepping back a little bit, could you give us an example of uh, something, asset management process outside the water industry and how asset inventory and data collection might be conducted?
1: Yeah, so asset management, like I said, was a business process. It developed primarily in manufacturing. So if we think about manufacturing, and this is, again, going back to the 1800s. So we'd have um, capitalists who would build a plant, you know, put a lot of money into building the plant. You'd buy equipment, and then you'd buy raw materials, and you'd hire people to you know, turn those raw materials, um, run them through the equipment, and make a widget to sale. Very capital intensive, we had to spend a lot of money to get the equipment, the building, and paying a lot of money uh, for the people. We don't get paid until we make something and sell that thing. So manufacturers realized in these assembly line processes that when a critical piece of infrastructure goes down, they're not making any money, and in fact, they're losing money. So uh, the analogy would be like uh, an assembly line, a car assembly line when a piece of equipment goes down in that assembly line that stops the assembly line, the manufacturer has to decide, okay, do I send everybody home and lose a day's worth of productivity, maybe lose some of the the, um, the inventory that's on the line, or do I pay people to stand there and do nothing while we try to fix the problem and then hopefully get back up and running again? So, um, manufacturers were really the, kind of the originator of, of asset management. They realized that they needed to um maintain their infrastructure their equipment so that they don't get um, don't get surprise failures another area where we can look at it is in like the, something as basic as a car rental business right that seems like a really basic thing you know I've got some cars people want to use the cars you know how much simpler could it be when we look at a car rental business, we need to know what type of vehicle it is, how many miles it has on it, when was it last serviced, what's its current status, is it rented, is it in for repairs, is it out for service, or is it available. Um, if it gets damaged by a previous user, we want to know that, very specific about how it got damaged, uh, so that we don't you know, accuse the next user of it, as well as we might want to get some repairs. Of course, things like maintenance schedules, um, records on failures when the vehicle may break down, those are all things that are going to uh, feed into our decision to maintain that asset or replace that asset over time. Um, So from really basic use metrics from our car, we have things like age, mileage, number of rentals. All of those things could be used to determine the condition of that asset. They could be used as proxies for the condition of the asset. Um, so we could also use things like user satisfaction surveys to determine when a vehicle becomes, you know, quote, tired. Boy, this car's in rough shape. I don't really wasn't really happy with renting it. I wanted something a little bit better. The upholstery should have been better. So we can use all those sources of data to better inform how we do uh, our business.
0: Uh, those examples you shared were great. Uh, I got two great uh, insights from your examples. One is that the data helps us to use our assets cost-effectively. And also, another lesson I learned was that data is, continual, is in continual flux. It's changing over time. How can we begin to apply this to a similar process in our water systems?
1: Yeah, so when we start looking at our, uh, something like our water system, we can take a look at the distribution part of this part of the system. And it's a little bit harder to, to see, right? It's not like a pump or something that we can actually physically see all the time with buried infrastructure. But we can start to do things like monitor break history, and we can understand based on the conditions, the inventory information on a specific pipe uh, type or pipe age, when that break history really starts to get an uptick, right? When do we have most of our breaks? are, are they? concentrated around a specific section of the system? And can we correlate that to um, get an idea of what the useful life of a specific pipeline section is? So that's one of those things where we can record these emergency repairs and we can help quantify the cost of poor infrastructure. And we can start to get an understanding of when an age when aged infrastructure becomes unsustainable, right? When is it gonna cost us more just to repair the system? When does it impact our users more versus having newer rehabilitated uh, material in the system?
0: I can see how this process uh, to collect data would be a lot harder with underground infrastructure. Uh, Do you have any um, advice uh, or principles that we can use to uh, leverage special opportunities that utilities might have uh, during uh, service connections or repairs to collect collect data beyond what we would normally be able to collect?
1: Yeah, the, the running joke is, you know, you, you always, once you close up the hole, you realize a couple of things you forgot to get. Uh, boy, I wish you would have taken more pictures, or boy, I wish you would have measured that. So one of the things with buried infrastructure is we don't have a lot of opportunities to take information on it, right? Obviously, when it's First installed, we have an opportunity to get pretty much all the information we'd like to get from it. But after it's buried, it's really hard to get information on. And a lot of times when we start out an asset management process, you know, we may have infrastructure that's in the ground 50, 70, even 100 years ago. And people may have not thought about getting all the information we might use for asset management. So certainly when we do have um, repairs or we have service connections or we have to do maintenance, when we, whenever we dig a hole, that's an opportunity to get more information. So first thing we can do is is start to understand, you know, what do we know about the buried utility as it stands now? What do we think is supposed to be there? And we can go back out and figure out, once we do a repair or, or start a uh, utility connection, did we find what we expected to find? And so I know you and I, Greg, have talked about uh, examples of uh, repairing uh, water lines and, you know, if we know what type of pipe is already in the ground and what type of pipes we have, what our general inventory is, we've probably got a pretty good idea of what types of repair materials we might need.
0: Yes. Yes, the size of repair clamps and the size of joints and uh, and so forth. We would be able to have those ready in inventory and with us at the, at the site. Now, moving on uh, to component two of asset management, you mentioned that Component two is level of service. Now, level of service, that sounds like something that the utility and the consumer agree on. How does a utility define their levels of service? Yeah, Level of service is one of those things that really kind of gets
1: away from the technical and and away from just one person making technical decisions and really gets into things that cross-cut across our our, uh, utility as well as our users. So level of service is typically um, uh, an explicit definition of kind of our overall goals that the utility can use to guide activity that we do or uh, we can use them to kind of determine if we're meeting users' needs. So uh, level of service goals can be internally focused or they can be externally focused. So for example, uh, an internally focused level of service Goal would be, for example, when we have an uh, emergency issue like a break, we're going to respond to that break within one hour. Right? That's a that's a performance metric that we can use um, to kind of guide what we do, and and of course it's supposed to be related to what our users want. Um, we could have an externally focused um, level of service goal that that really defines what users expect. So. You know, again, level of service is going to have some type of a measurable performance metric associated with it. So I always think about the best example of this is not necessarily in infrastructure, but in business. So, Greg, if you and I were going to start a shipping business, like we were going to compete with UPS or FedEx or something like that, what types of uh, performance metrics would be important to you? Like when you order a package, what do you care about?
0: Hmm. Well, I guess I would like to have the package get to me uh, in an undamaged state. And if it could get to me on time, that would be definitely a plus.
1: Yeah, exactly. Those are some of the the most important metrics for shipping, right? We want to know as soon as we hit the buy button, how fast is it going to get to us? Um, That's important. We want to make sure it doesn't show up in 10 pieces when it's only supposed to be in one piece. We want to make sure it's not damaged. We want to make sure it goes to us instead of the neighbor. So those are all; um, those can be all related to performance metrics. So if we think about it, um, when we buy an overnight package from UPS or FedEx, um, you know they have a promise, a guarantee, right? Um, the package will be delivered. Overnight packages are going to be delivered by ten a.m. the next day if you drop them off by eight uh, eight a.m. the day before, right? So again that's a service a level of service guarantee that's what i'm paying the extra money for they might have a lower level of service which is standard shipping right i'm going to get a package to somewhere in the u.s within five to ten days you're going to pay lower a lower level of money a lower level for a lower level of service right and so we have to in utilities as well we have to understand what users want and be able to provide that that level service sometimes they're very cost sensitive sometimes they're not they want the service those are all external um, levels of service. We can also use internal levels of service or internal goals uh, to kind of guide what we do in in, in uh, how we expend resources. So, for example, Greg, if I made you the manager of uh, my shipping depot and I said, "Greg, the only thing I care about is you know make sure it gets to people you know on time and quick." If that was the only thing you cared about, you might make the decision well. Every time a package comes in, I'm just going to send it airmail, right? I'm going to get it there as quick as possible because that's what Tim said is the most important thing. So we could use an internal performance metric, and we could say that we're going to use the lowest cost shipping option that meets our delivery agreements with our users and um, has a low damage and low low loss rate. We could further define what low damage and low loss rate means. So that would kind of moderate our activity. It would help us decide behind meeting the goals of our users and then how we allocate resources internally. Um, so again, some of those are business related. Some of those are user related.
0: So it sounds like levels of service are measurable performance metrics that help utilities strike a balance between service goals and cost. and helps us to conduct analysis. Could you also provide some examples of level of service goals for utilities? Yeah, absolutely. So some of the
1: obvious levers of service goals are defined by you by your permit, right? You've got um, uh, regulatory requirements that you have to meet and those are usually the lowest operating level expectations. You're going to you're going to at least meet these or a bad thing happens, which is a permit violation and, and you know, obviously nobody wants that. Um, there's other levels of service goals that we can put in place that are just good business sense. So for example, we can target financial well Um, so we could say something like, uh, we want to minimize our water loss to, uh, less than 10% of our gross sales. That just makes sense. If we have high water loss rates, we're spending money, uh, generating water, treating water, and then not getting paid for that water. So, you know, what we set that target at is, is, again, up to the individual agency. It may be acceptable for some agencies to lose a lot of water, and other climates, you know, <laughs> very low water loss might be preferable. We could do things that are, are customer-focused, uh, so keeping downtime to less than four hours during a break. So, again, that, that's a, a performance metric that's pretty flexible. It's not prescriptive. It doesn't say you've got to fix the break within four hours. It means that we've got to get everybody hooked up with something and, and try to restore some kind of service uh, within four hours after a catastrophic event. That could include you know, running a service line, a temporary service line, running something from the neighbors, a hose bib, doing something just to connect up uh, a neighbor. Uh, we could look at something like keeping pressure and having certain pressure ranges all across our system. And that's a performance metric that might dictate that we collect different types of information. So we would have to, if, if we were worried about keeping pressure within an acceptable range you know one of the things we would have to go out is certainly go out and collect data on pressure during high and low flow events um, during fire flow events potentially and then we would maybe even have to model that data to figure out how to make changes so um, level of service really ties in to uh, some of the asset information we data collection process that we we do. It's it's kind of a hand-in-hand relationship.
0: I think you've already partially answered this question, but could we say that uh, industry standards, regulatory requirements, and customer needs are all examples of level of service goals? Yeah, I think that's,
1: that's spot on, Greg. Um, we can have uh, level of service goals that come from multiple different areas. Again, internal or external, they can be business-related, they can be user-related, uh, or they could be technical.
0: And uh what should utilities do to measure and track level of service goals? Well,
1: like I said, level of service goals always have some performance metric that goes back to them. So there's always something we're measuring. It, you know, for example, if we were trying to minimize uh, the number of breaks that we have in in uh, distribution our distribution network, it, clearly one of the things that we're going to consider are pipe. Uh, pipe age or pipe condition, Um, so we could relate that. It might not be a direct measure, but we would say that this is a related metric. We know that older pipes are going to break more, older pipes are going to have more issues, so therefore we would like to uh, replace or repair uh, any of our our old aging infrastructure to try to to move that metric
0: forward. Okay, uh, the third component uh, moving on through the asset management components was Defining the critical assets in a utility. Now, wouldn't you say that all the assets in a utility are critical?
1: Yeah, it's that, certainly how it feels like, especially when something fails. You go, "Oh, that that was the most important thing because it's failed now." But when we take a cla- kind of a classical look at um, risk and critical critical assets, really what we're trying to do is is take a look at the likelihood that something is going to fail, and then combine that with the consequence of that failure. So risk is a measure of the combination of those two things, right? We might have an event that's very unlikely um, but has a huge consequence. And we might want to plan for that thing. Or we might have something that's very likely but has a low consequence. So the best example I can kind of think about that is uh, if we're worried about water loss or we're worried about catastrophic breaks, I would certainly look at say service lines and the main transmission line between the well field and the elevated storage tank as very different in terms of the consequence of failure so they may be uh, our service lines may be in the same general condition same general age as our transmission main Um, they may have the same useful life but clearly if if i have a service line break well that's bad for the person who's you know, house that we serve. They're not going to have water until we can reconnect it. But the consequence is not very large compared to, you know, rupturing the transmission main, not being able to serve the entire system. So consequence of failure is is a big issue. It helps
0: us navigate risk. So would we then assign a higher risk uh, to something like a transmission main than to a distribution main and use that that risk scoring as a means to prioritize how we spend financial and labor resources? Is that how it works? Yeah, absolutely.
1: It should be a major consideration. So if we had to, um, you know, we're we're always going to have to pick projects. We're always going to have to make decisions between um, doing Project X and doing Project Y. Mm. Just we don't, we never have enough money to do all of these things at once. So for example, if we looked at, you know, upgrading our transmission main that might be getting old, um, or doing, say, painting on our elevated storage tank, right? Both of those things are important. One is a replacement activity. One is a preventive maintenance activity. But you know, if we look at the consequence of the failure, again, if we don't paint our uh, a steel store above ground storage tank, right? The consequence of failure is over time it's going to rust and uh, it's going to degrade, and we may have problems in the future. Um, that's something that's going to happen slow. It's something we're going to be able to see over time. And, and quite honestly, you know, even though it might be time to paint, we could delay that for a year or two and not have a huge consequence. Um, if we have our main transmission line that's in questionable shape and it's starting to have a highly, uh, high rupture frequency, you know, the, the possibility that that's going to rupture and fail totally and bring the whole system down, like those are those are big things, right? Um, so risk is gonna be one of those things that helps us moderate between the different levels of service that we're trying
0: to do with the same base amount of money. I see how that risk analysis helps us to make the tough decisions between competing goals. Let's move to the fourth component of asset management now. And could you tell us about the concept of minimum life cycle costing?
1: Yeah, so this uh, this element is known by a lot of different names. Uh, minimizing lifecycle costs uh, could be also called uh, capital and operations and maintenance planning. Um, it could be called an operations strategy. Um, so basically, if we think about it, we know what we own. We know what condition it's in. We have an understanding of what our goals are, what we're trying to maximize, and what we're trying to do. We know where our risks are. The next question, the next thing is to put all that together in um, a strategy, a coherent strategy strategy, um, that usually has the the goal of maximizing performance and minimizing cost. Um, So the intent is that we look at all the assets that we have, we proactively plan to maintain and replace them, and uh, we want to make sure that we're doing the right things at the right place at the right time. And so if we think about that in terms of assets that we deal with regularly we can think of it in terms of like purchasing a vehicle right purchasing a vehicle has got more expensive than ever now right so when we purchase that vehicle we're going to be writing a check for a lot of money um, but that asset's going to have life over a long period of time right i'm going to probably at least be able to get five years out of a car maybe 10 years if i maintain it properly so in a vehicle, it would be really uncommon for somebody to say, boy, you know, I purchased this brand new you know, Cadillac Coupe de Ville, top of the line, everything, and I spent so much money on this vehicle that I just don't have money to change the oil in it. So I'm just going to skip oil changes for the first five or six years. And, but you know, after that, after I pay off the car in five or six years, then I'll have lots of money to do oil changes. And I'll do oil, oil changes at really high frequencies at that point, right? That obviously is flawed thinking, right? The damage is done if we don't do maintenance in the time frame that we need, our operations and maintenance. The damage accrues, um, we can't go back in time and fix those things. So when we talk about life cycle costing, we're trying to plan out when we're gonna need money, when we're gonna need to do activities. So for example, in a car, we know that, you know, say every three to 5,000 miles, we're gonna have to change the oil. We know that every, say, 10,000 miles, we're gonna have to rotate the tires. Every 50,000 miles, we're gonna have to pay money to get new tires. Uh, we might need to change belts Uh, clearly we got to wash the vehicle or uh, you know clean the interior so there's all these maintenance things that have to go on so minimum life cycle costing is about making sure that we have that with our infrastructure I guess I could give you an example where we'd look at uh, say a water valve in a distribution system we spend a lot of money putting that valve in it's expensive to replace one of the operations and maintenance things that we could plan is a valve exercising program. Yes. And that's one of those things that, yeah, it's tough to tell people to go out and just turn a valve on and off, turn a valve on and off. Uh, things like hydrant flushing. Those are all things that are operations maintenance that add to the life of our of our asset. We make sure that we get the the value out of that asset. Um, you know, that's really what this is all about is, is to make sure that, We have the resources available to do the necessary maintenance and rehabilitation and replacement when it's needed.
0: I can see from your examples that life cycle costing is a way of bringing together the maintenance and the replacement planning and the rehabilitation and repairs all in a coherent whole in a way that reduces the overall cost of that asset, makes it last. And in your example with the car oil changes, uh, a simple $100 investment per year, could allow a $60,000 vehicle to last 10 years, where we're basically our cost is $6,000 per year, whereas if we didn't change the oil properly and the car only lasts five years, then our cost goes up to $12,000 per year, for example, for that $60,000 vehicle. Let's move on to the fifth component, which is long-term funding plans. Could you tell us about how long-term funding plans fit into the asset management process?
1: Yeah, long-term funding plans are, are really the end of the game, or I, or I should say the last step in the game. It's not the end of the game because it's a cycle. It repeats, right? It, it's a con- continuous process. So long-term funding plans are sometimes called asset management plans. Um, the idea is that we're going to look out 5 to 10 years, and we're going to try to understand what our needs are from our capital and operations uh, standpoint. You know, what are the things that we're going to need to spend money on to accomplish our our strategic strategic goals? Um, We really want to make sure that the income that we have coming into our system, the the financial resources that we have, the the human resources that we have, are um, sufficient to be able to do the things that we need to do in the times that we need to do them. So, again, not to beat the car analogy (laughs) too much, but... You know, the example would be uh, putting money away to save for a vehicle. It's one of the things I tell my kids all the time. Like, yes, you have a car today, but that car is aging. You're basically spending um, on the investment that we made in that vehicle four years, five years, ten years ago. And at some point, the bill is going to come due for that system. Right, some point, you can't keep patching the vehicle together. You're going to have to replace the vehicle, or you're going to have to do a a major rehabilitation on the vehicle, like replace the engine, or replace the transmission, or do a bunch of body work. And uh, we have to plan for those things. We have to make contingencies and make sure we have the financial resources available for when that bill becomes due. Um, So I think the same is true when we start talking about um, asset management of infrastructure. right? We have to plan for those things that are, are going to fail. We know that infrastructure has uh, um, a useful life uh, that's uh, determinant, right? We, we know there's an end to it. <laughs> you know, you always hear stories about, boy, we've got, uh, we dug up a water main and it was a wood water main, it was over 100 years old. Yeah, that's well past the useful life for that that asset. So really that's what long-term financial plans are is it's Balancing the investments that we need to make um, and making sure that we have the financial resources from either rates or or other sources uh, Coming in to be able to make sure we can do what we need to do when we need to do it
0: Well, that's great information If, if I could just sort of summarize what you've talked about today You've gone through the five components of an asset management plan collecting data on our current state of our assets determining the levels of service that we're going to track and measure, determining the critical assets within our utility, figuring out how to minimize the life cycle cost of our assets, and then ultimately coming up with a long-term funding plan that you've just described. And you've provided us with some great uh, analogies here. In the shipping business, we looked at levels of service. In the rental car uh, business example, we looked at uh, data collection and uh, in the vehicle ownership uh, examples, you provided us some great examples about life cycle costing and and criticality and long term funding. Uh, do you have any final thoughts about uh, how systems can begin to establish a an asset management plan for the utility? Yeah,
1: so one of the things to remember is that asset management concepts are universal. It doesn't matter whether we're talking about roads, bridges, cars, water systems, wastewater systems. The concepts are universal. How you apply them is very specific to you, though. So each individual utility, each individual infrastructure owner, is going to have different things that there, different parts of, of asset management that they're going to use slightly differently, and that's okay. That's actually important because again, keep in mind, asset management is a business process. It has to meet a need and help you make better decisions. Um, if it doesn't do that, it, you're you know if you can't get a process an asset management process that does that, then it's um, it's kind of wasted effort. Um, because it is a base uh, business process it's very personal it's very it's something that happens with your staff it's happens with the your day-to-day activities Um, it's going to require a change in thinking and require a change in process and that can be hard to do Uh, change is hard sometimes and it's not necessarily gonna uh, gonna get accomplished overnight right we're not just gonna say hey tomorrow you know, Greg, why don't we do asset management for everything that we have? It's going to be a a slow change and it's an iterative process. So, you know, we may collect our initial data. uh, We may set performance goals and then realize, boy, we we actually need to collect a little bit more data or different types of data. Um, We may get into our risk assessment and that may change everything. We may realize that we've got some huge risks that we've got to uh, address Um, and that may bring us back to the drawing board with Setting or changing our performance metrics may change our data that we collect. So it really is an iterative process. And again, it's a process, it's a cycle. It happens over and over again. So um, asset management is not something you're gonna do. You're gonna write a nice report with charts and graphs and you're gonna put it, hopefully, you're not gonna just put it aside and say, boy, I'm glad we're done with that. Uh, Like I said, it's a business process that helps guides uh, how we deliver service. You know, the goal of asset management is to look at complex systems complex networks and look at them at a network level. And that's kind of something that we're not used to doing. So we're very used to looking at projects. Um, And when we look at these complex systems, they have project level needs and they have network level needs. And maybe to explain that a little bit more, I could relate the game of chess. I'm not very good at chess, (laughs) but uh, chess is a neat, neat game because it has project level wins and it has network-level wins. So a project-level win in chess is moving a piece legally. Each piece moves differently, depending on whether it's first turn, whether something else has happened on the board, whether it's attacking. So each piece, you have to know the rules of how to move each piece. So that's step one in a project-level win. Second project-level win is we have to be able to put a piece, a chess piece in a location that our our, uh, opponent isn't gonna be able to take in the very next turn, right? So that's a project level win. In asset management of infrastructure, we could say a project level win is constructing a project on time, on budget, with high quality, right? Those would be good things to happen. Those would be good things that we would look for a project. Um, On the network side though, if we look at chess, the network level win for chess is taking the other person's king. So let me ask you this, Greg. If we do all the project level moves correctly, 100% of the time, if we move our pieces legally and we put them on a square that can't be taken in the very next turn, do we automatically win the network game in chess?
0: There's no guarantee.
1: Absolutely no guarantee. My my son, when he was uh, younger, I think he was nine, showed me that uh, in, in a surprising fashion. We played chess for the first time. He was... Uh, I think in an after-school chess club. And uh, we are playing chess, and I was counting my wins based on the pieces I was taking. You know, oh, I got your pawn, you know, hey, one for dad. Oh, I got your rook, one for dad. And I got so involved in that project level, I forgot the network level entirely. In about seven moves, uh, my son said, well, you know, that's checkmate. And I looked at him and said, well, obviously, son, you don't know how this game is played. Oh, I'll be darned checkmate. <laughs> so he was he was playing the network level game. He was sacrificing pieces. He was making strategic moves to accomplish the overall network goal. I was counting projects. And that's the same thing when we talk about infrastructure, right? We can get hung up talking about projects. Did we get it on time? Did we get it on budget? Did we get it um, with high quality? Um, and we can say that, you know, this part of the system got better, but the entire system may not have, have got better.
0: Dr. Tim Colling, I want to thank you for taking the time to join us today. I, I for one, uh, have a greater understanding of asset management on the macro and the micro level as well. Thank you for joining us today.
1: Yeah, it's a pleasure to be here, Greg.
0: And for our listeners, we thank you for joining us today, and we hope that you'll list, uh, tune in to future episodes of our podcast and we want to let you know where you can go to find more information Uh, efcnetwork.org has training resources about asset management tools that you can download to help you begin an asset management plan at your utility you can also request technical assistance so once again thank you for joining us today Thank you to all our listeners for tuning into this episode of the EFC Network podcast, brought to you with support from the U.S. EPA. Be sure to stay tuned for future EFC Network podcast episodes.